Spirit. Yeah, what a gift, a year of prayer. Don't we need it, right? We need it in the church and in the world. God has desired ends and chosen means. Desired ends and chosen means. That means that he has things that he wants to bring about, desired ends, and chosen means. That means that he has ways in which he has determined what he desires to come will come. And did you know that you are the desired means of God? What he wants to bring about in the world comes through his desired means. What does that mean? That means if you don't pray, what he desires to occur won't come to fruition because he's chosen you to be an essential part of his plan of redeeming the world, of healing the world, of healing the church. So many of us don't understand how much he wants us to participate with him, how much he wants to meet us in prayer, and how much he wants to pour out his grace through your heart, your mind, to bring about the salvation of the world. I don't know, I wonder how many of you know how much he desires to be with you. Think about maybe you're the one who loves you the most in your life. You know, do, do you all have that person who, when you call, they say, oh, it's so good to hear from you. Uh, Father John Bartunek always do, did, does that to me. Whenever I call this priest who wrote one of the best books ever on the, on the Gospels, Every time he, I call him, he says, Dan Burke, it's so good to hear from you. Do you all have somebody like that in your life? Sometimes it's a, just a really happy grandparent or maybe a mother or someone who always misses you. And every time they look at you, they think, wow, you're so beautiful and you're so wonderful. Did you know that Jesus has that same heart for you. I remember one time I was gifted in prayer. I was reading through the Gospels in, in the portion of the Gospel where uh, we are coming to the Last Supper. And uh, I found myself sitting across from Jesus as I was reading the scripture passage where he says, I have longed to share this meal with you. And the English doesn't render very well what he was saying because he repeats himself in the Greek in a way where his desire is to express this kind of deep, visceral longing. It's not like, oh, it's good to see you. But it's more like, I'm so glad you're here. I've missed you. And I've so much wanted to share this meal with you. I've so much wanted to share myself with you. I ache to share myself with you. And this sharing he's speaking of, of course, happens by God's great mercy 
every day in the holy sacrifice of the Mass. But do you realize that God desires to share himself with you at this deepest level? It makes me sad. So many of the people of God don't feel very loved. They look at themselves in the mirror. They don't look to themselves. They don't look like somebody who's irresistible to God. But I want you to know that you are. St. Teresa of Avila in the interior castle says that the soul of a just man is beautiful and delightful to God. And it's a place where he wants to reside and he wants to get to know you and he wants to love you. What does it mean when she says the soul of a just man? Of course, what it means is she means the soul of one who is walking in a state of grace. One who's received the great love that he has for them through the sacrament of penance, through the sacraments of baptism and confirmation. The soul of a just man means the soul of one whose garden, the interior reality of who they are, is clean. And Teresa says that he delights to be with you, in you. It's beautiful. But the problem is that a lot of us don't know how to live that reality, how to experience that reality. Why is that? There's a passage in scripture that reveals the answer to why we don't know this deep love, why we struggle so much with understanding how much we're loved. And this passage is in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. It says, as Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he entered a village and a woman called Martha welcomed him to her house. Already sounds like a holy woman to me. She knows who Jesus is. And Jesus is coming to her house. Pretty special, don't you think? King of kings and Lord of lords. Who are you having for dinner tonight? Who's on your guest list? Is it the Messiah? The one who died and gave his life for all of mankind? Paid the price for sin? Past, present, and future? Who's coming to your house for dinner? Who's on your guest list? Wouldn't it be cool? Oh, Jesus is coming to my house. Pretty deep. So Martha welcomes him to her house. And she had a sister named Mary who sat down at the Lord's feet to listen to his words. A sister named Mary who did what instantly as he entered in? As soon as he stopped moving and he sat down, wherever he sat, she sat at his feet and looked up at him. 
Martha, meanwhile, was busy with serving, the, all the serving she had to do. So Mary, when Jesus makes himself known, sits at his feet, and Martha's scurrying around, serving. What's going on in Martha's head as she's serving? This is an important guest. This is the Messiah. I need to care for him. I need to take care of him. I need to do all of these things. And at last she said, so she'd been thinking as she's scurrying around, as Mary's sitting at Jesus' feet looking up, Martha's very preoccupied with stuff, but something's building up in her. In these just first few moments of Jesus' arrival. And at last she said, she speaks now what she's been thinking. Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the serving alone? Tell her to help me. Imagine saying that to Jesus. I mean, this is pretty disordered, right? Now, what's funny is this woman's a great saint. So Stephanie and I have led pilgrimage uh, to France where she eventually was a, a missionary to France and really had this huge impact. There's no doubt Martha's a good woman. But I want to tell you she's not quite deeply converted yet. This passage is very clear. Unfortunately, when the passage comes around every year, even the best commentators, so that they don't get scolded in the back of the church, always focus on defending Martha, which I find quite scandalous. Because what they're doing is they're twisting the scripture to say something it doesn't say. This is not the deeply converted Martha that evangelized France. Not yet, anyway. This is a disordered woman at this stage who's yet to figure out what's really important. She has some idea. Jesus is very important. Jesus needs to be served. But she's not quite there yet. She doesn't get it yet. So much so that she questions the Lord. See, it's like an accusation. What's wrong with you? She's not helping. Don't you care? Are you serious? Are you serious? She, asking Jesus that? You don't care about me. I'm busy. You're not paying attention. This is, this, this is unjust. She's doing nothing. She's doing nothing. I'm doing something. She's doing nothing. I'm doing something. You see how disordered this is? You know, it's interesting. Um, a lot of good uh, people of God say the same thing. You'll hear it like this. Don't just pray there. 
do something. Don't just sit there listening and paying attention to God. Get up and do something. They have the same disorder as Martha. They think what Mary is doing is inconsequential and not important. And that doing acting, doing this external work is what's important. Get out there and protest abortion clinics. Get out there and vote. Get out there and do whatever the do is. And you know what this activism produces? It produces a vision of the world that is purely political. It's purely human. I'm just really on this human level. It's really an impoverished view of what's really going on. Because the only real thing that's really happening is what I'm doing. The activity of life. Lord, don't you care? And it produces a bitterness. It, it causes us to question God when we have this natural perspective on what's going on. That's all Martha has in this picture at this stage, prior to her conversion, in my opinion. Deeper conversion. All she sees is the temporal. Who sees the eternal? Who knows what's more important? So this focus on activity, it, it almost, it, it, she's questioning God. And it feels a little bitter. This is unjust. Do you not care that my sister has left me to do the serving alone? Don't you care that my sister doesn't know what's most important and I'm tired and running around? And now she has the gall to tell the Messiah what to do about it. This is really nuts when you look at it. Tell her to help me. Wow. It's really crazy. Thank God he answered so we could get this all straightened out. He says, But the Lord answered, Martha, Martha, you are worried and troubled about many things. I don't really know what this sounded like. I don't know how it would hit Martha. Like, I, I just have this sense that when Jesus spoke, it had this kind of reverberation that would enter the soul, heart, and mind of the person. And when it was supposed to shake them, it would shake them internally. Like if he decided to speak in that kind of power that he could only he could as being fully God and fully man. So I don't really know. You know, I do know he was gentle. We know this. He was very gentle and very kind and patient with people who were a little off track. So maybe it was Martha. Martha. This 
shaking. I imagine if it was her, my instinct is it probably was spoken with some power and some gravity to get through to her because she's, she's frantic. She's not at peace. Right? So some power. And I can imagine him, I can imagine her as he spoke her name twice. It wasn't just once, it was twice. The effect may have had her step back and her eyes get a little big, like, oh, 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 gosh, what have I done? And then he speaks in a way that I have no doubt ripped right into her heart. This happened to me once. I grew up in abuse. Uh, my stepfather, uh, in between firing a gun in our home in an argument with my mother and destroying our home end to end and beating her into the emergency room, attempted to convince me the Catholic Church was the one true faith. It's a really crummy approach to evangelism, I want you to know. So I grew up in a home that was filled with this kind of tension and fear. I grew up in a home where there was worry and trouble about many things. But I have also learned that no matter where you come from or now, no matter how dark things are, you can find the peace that God desires to give you. I grew up in a home that caused me to be worried and troubled about many things. And I became a very angry young man. And I, even though I converted to Christianity eventually, I carried a lot of that anger with me, a lot of those wounds. And I remember one day, I was very effective in my work. I worked for an organization called Focus on the Family and I had saved this organization, it was a global organization, millions and millions of dollars by solving huge business and technology problems, all the while wrecking people along the way. Because I had, a, I had some, some good motivation, like Martha, but a disordered heart. And I remember one executive one day said to me, are you always gonna be motivated by anger? Unfortunately, my nickname was Nuke, short for nuclear. I was very kind to people below me, but I was not very kind to my peers or if you were above me and we came into a meeting and you said something I didn't agree with or that I didn't think was all that smart, then I would say I would, it would be difficult for you based on my behavior. And I remember this holy executive calling me into his office and it was like, it feels like this moment with Jesus and Martha. And he said to me, are you always gonna let anger drive you? He could have said, are you always gonna live with this level of anxiety and tension wherein you don't treat people with the love you claim to know? He could have said, Dan, you're worried and troubled by many things 
I think you don't quite understand what's most important here. Thank you for saving us millions of dollars. It would be good if you would just learn to be kind and you would treat God's people a little better. And in that moment when he said that, because it was the power of the Holy Spirit at work, it ripped into me. The Holy Spirit said, he's right. And you need to change. And I tell you, it was tough. It took me like a year, literally a year, thinking about what he said. Because my identity was rooted in my effectiveness at business. And I wondered what I would become if I heard him well and I changed the way that I behaved. But I knew he was right, I knew I had to, but I was afraid that I would become less effective and I might lose my position, my status as a person who could solve these gigantic problems. So about a year later, I said yes to the Lord. I said, please change me, whatever the consequence. And you know, I became less effective. I know some of you were hoping the story ended with, oh, but you became more effective because you followed Jesus. No, I didn't. I became less effective and I slowed down and I did less damage to the people of God and learned how to love and get things done well enough, you know? So I think something like this happened to Martha in this moment. Martha, Martha, you worry and are troubled about many things. And he said, whereas only one thing is needed. Unum est necessarium. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the better part. There's one thing he said. Man, he could have said a lot here. He could have just talked with her about her anxiety at a deeper level and dealt with that, and he didn't. But instead he said, no, I'm not, in, in essence, I'm not going to ask her to get up and get busy. He said, because Mary has chosen that one thing. She's chosen the thing that is better than what you have chosen. And it will not be taken away from her. It's almost like if you could get the posture, Martha is coming with the anxious and, and the anxiety. Mary's here on the on the floor in front of Jesus, Martha speaks. And it's almost like she, she shields Martha from Mary to protect Mary and what she's doing. She says, no, 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 no. She has it right. She's chosen the one thing that's necessary, the better part. I'm not going to take that from her. What is the implication? an invitation. 
won't you join her, Martha? Because I guarantee you, because we know Martha is a good woman. We know that. A little disordered at this stage. But I guarantee you, the next time they visited this house in Bethany, Martha worked to, uh, just because she's good. She got a little extra help. They got all the food ready. And as soon as Jesus arrived, she and Mary together were at Jesus' feet. Don't you think that's probably what happened with Martha? How else could she become a great saint? I don't, I, after being rebuked by the Lord, I think a great saint has to respond and say, yes, you're right, Lord, I'm sorry. We don't have that on record, but we certainly have the fruits of that reality. Mary has chosen the better part and will not be taken away from her. This is the year of prayer. This is a year where Martha should be celebrated and exalted, Mary, I'm sorry, should be celebrated and exalted for choosing that one, that one thing. This is a year where we ought to hear the Lord saying to us, come and sit at my feet. Would you please choose this better thing, this better part? This is a year where the Lord is saying to you, are you tired enough yet of all of the anxiety that you feel? Are you tired enough of being subject to the fear that you feel, the anger, the angst, the hurt, the darkness? This is a year of invitation of the Lord saying, won't you come and sit with me? Don't you know that I can heal you? Don't you know that all that ails you, that I've paid the price for? Don't you know that I love you? And don't you know that you don't have to do all this scurrying around? You don't need to prove yourself to me. Do you believe in me? Do you trust me? Then wouldn't you just come and sit with me? Don't you know that I created you so that you would come and sit with me? Don't you know that you are beautiful to me? And that you're irresistible to me? Please come and sit. This is his invitation. But many of us don't know how to do this. We don't know how to shift out of this busyness that is so natural to us. And it's because you're good too, like Martha. And you want to be good. And you want to demonstrate your goodness. And so you think you do that, you achieve that by scurrying around and doing all of these external activities. You know, uh, in the Old Testament passages, 
that Jesus liked to quote. One of them was in the readings today. I want your obedience, not your sacrifice. In another place, he says something, another passage in the Old Testament where God says to his people, I want your hearts, not your sacrifice. Which can be very confusing because didn't the Lord set up the sacrificial system? So how is it he could say, I need you to sacrifice to, to atone for sin and one, in one instance, and another for him to say, I want your heart, I want your obedience, not your sacrifice. The answer is, is because he wants both. But because we can become disordered in the way we emphasize how we respond to God in a way that's not healthy. And how is, what is the fundamental issue with this disorder? It's that we choose the active outward behavior, but it's not motivated by the deepest kind of love and conversion that he desires for us. This was the Pharisees, right? He said, do what they do, but don't, don't, live, don't live out the hypocrisy they live out because they have all this external piety, but they're whitewashed sepulchers. What does that mean? They're great, they're, they're, uh, in modern language, it's like a beautiful coffin that's very pretty on the outside, but there's a dead body in the inside. We're not alive to him in the inside. And he wants us to wake up and come out of that grave. He wants us to be free. He wants us to know how beautiful we are to him. Why else would he come? Why else would he be, allow himself to be spit upon and beaten and derided? For what? Because he loved? Because he gave everything? He had to do that to try to break through to us who were so easily distracted with things that mean nothing, like whether or not the table is set well or the food is cooked appropriately or whatever the list is. And he says, I would like for you and me to just be together in your messy house, in your messy life, in your brokenness. Can't we just get to know each other? Don't you know I don't care about any of those things? Don't you know what I care about is you and your heart? That's what I care about. Don't you know that I love you? I find it quite extraordinary that the King of Kings and Lord of Lords would bring his executioner into existence. That's how big his love is. Do you know who his executioner is? Do you know why the stripes were laid across his back and his flesh was ripped? 
from his body? Do you know why the nails were driven through his hand and his feet? Do you know why the crown of thorns was pressed into his head? Do you know why he was a complete bloody mess by the time he died? Because of your sin. Because of my sin. We are his executioner. Do you realize the greatness of that love? That even though he knew that I would spit in his face and I would say no and I would mock his mother when I wasn't a Christian, he still yet then, as he conceived of me before he brought me into existence, as he knew what I would do to him, called me forth anyway. Gosh, what a great love. And he called me forth, knowing he would pay the price for that sin, for your sin and for mine. Because he loved me, you more, so much more, with a love wherein he said, you are worth it to me. You are worth it to me. I know what you're going to do to me, and it's okay. I still want you, and I'm going to forgive you of all of it, and I'm going to wash it all away, and I'm going to give myself for you over and over and over again until you're healed, until you're free, until you're liberated. And then I want to spend all of eternity with you. It's interesting that the passage just following this story in Bethany is the one where Jesus' disciples come and say, Lord, teach us to pray. Would you teach us to pray? I wonder if they knew or they watched Martha and Mary, and I wonder if they saw this or heard of this exchange, and this is their motivation. I wonder if they heard. If they didn't see the incident between Martha and Mary, I'm, I'm sure they heard about it. Did you hear what happened? Martha, Martha, the one who's always doing everything right and who's always so concerned about serving other people and always so good. And the Lord rebuked her. Mary wasn't doing anything. She was just sitting at his feet. Do you believe this happened? What does this mean? We gotta ask him. What does this mean, Lord? Would you teach us to pray? You said she chose the better part. You said she chose the most important thing. Would you teach this to us? I wonder. Seems plausible to me. The spiritual doctors of the church say that um, uh, Teresa of Avila in particular St. Teresa of Avila and St. Uh, Alphonsus Liguri, 
also St. Thomas Aquinas, all say that there's this kind of prayer that, Martha, that Mary knew that is necessary. And it's not just necessary and important, but it's so important that if we don't understand it and we don't pursue it, that we won't make it to heaven. They literally said that. Alphonsus Liguri, in very strong language, says that if you don't understand and practice, or if you don't live this reality that Mary knew, this mental prayer, that you can't make it to heaven. Why would he say that? Why would Teresa of Avila speak in such a way? The reason is, is because they watched people who claimed to follow God all of their lives. They led great movements in the church. They knew thousands and thousands of people who claimed the name of Jesus. And there was a difference between those who said, Jesus is the most important thing to me in my life, but didn't pray. And those who said, Jesus is the most important thing in my life, but did pray. They could see the difference. Those that did pray had, had an easier time understanding their own sin and brokenness and fighting that sin. Those who did pray were able to shed anxiety, fear, doubt, despair, and darkness. They were able to shed it. They weren't worried about many things. Those who did pray, like Mary, weren't constantly struggling with the life, with this life. Anger, sorrow, bitterness. Why is that? Why is that? Let's go to the first century and be with Jesus. What would it be like? Think about it. How many of you watch The Chosen? Raise your hand high. Every one of you should be raising your hand. I'm telling you. Is it perfectly depicting everything in Scripture? No. Does any art perfectly represent what it seeks to represent? No. The Pieta in Rome of Michelangelo is, is disproportionate in size. It's not accurate. So let's smash the thing and throw it out. That's dumb. Can it teach you the love and mercy of God? Oh my. Jonathan Rumi is killing it. He's just killing it. So think about it. What would it be like if you were with Jesus in the first century? What's your name? Yes. Yusuf. That's a great name. Yusuf. So what it would be, would it be like, Yusuf, if um, you were in the movie, you know, you were in the, like really there. And every day you were, you were a follower of Jesus. And when he got up, you got up. And when he went from one town to another, you went from one town to another. And you got to walk side by side with him. What would it be like if he occasionally had his arm around you, talking to you? It would feel good, wouldn't it? What, what would he talk to you about? He would talk to you about things of the depths of your soul. He would tell you the secrets of the kingdom. 
And every once in a while he would say, Yusuf, you're such a good man. And sometimes he would say, Yusuf, what you're thinking about right now is not good. Yusuf, I've noticed you do that a lot. And he would say, you know, Yusuf, I love you. Would you let me heal you of that? What would you say? Yes. Please, Jesus. What if that happened a thousand times to you? Be a saint. You'd be writing about you and you'd be in the Bible, wouldn't you? Why is that? Because Jesus isn't just a man. He wasn't just some good dude. He was King of kings and Lord of lords. Creator of heaven and earth. Why is mental prayer so important? The exact same thing that Yusuf and I just talked about. Because when you spend time with him, he transforms you. Why, was, why is Mary the exemplar of all of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus? Yes, she was preserved from original sin, but I would argue it was because she was constantly in his presence. And now we know this very cool thing about moms. This is the coolest thing for moms. That because of the way the baby is formed in the womb of the mother, the mother actually shares in the DNA of the, of the, of the baby. Like Jesus' DNA was mixed in with Mary somehow. We know this scientifically. But I think just even his presence, like anyone that Jesus was around, who truly understood who he was and was open to him, they were transformed by that reality. And that's what I love about the chosen, because you see it. No matter how vile or broken a person is or, or the sins that they committed, I love Mary Magdalene in, in Chosen. God, I just love her. And all of her struggles and all of her darkness and her failures and running back towards sin. Jesus doesn't let her go. They go and get her. They heal her. And by the way, it's, it's one of the most beautiful scenes. Who brings Mary, Mary Magdalene back to Jesus? After her first fall, it's Mary, the mother of God. She unites them together. We can't know this great love if we don't seek it. We have to make a choice to be Mary of Bethany and sit at his feet or we won't know it. We won't know this healing. That's why these great saints say, you can't make it to heaven because Yusuf, see this conversation Jesus and Yusuf were having, what happens if they don't have that conversation? He doesn't see his sin. He may not even be aware. But if Yusuf is talking to Jesus all the time, looking in his eyes and seeking to emulate him and running after him and stumbling and fumbling, but then Jesus lifts him up and says, let me help you understand why you did what you just did. It's because you have a wound inside of you I need to heal. Don't be ashamed, Yusuf. That's why I came. But if we don't spend time with him, we don't see our sin. This is what St. Alphonsus of Liguri argued as to why we can't make it to heaven. 
Yusuf cannot become aware of who he is truly before God each and every day. Yusuf can't fix his moral compass every day. That concupiscence is constantly drawing off of true north. Yusuf was born with original sin. God be praised. Were you baptized as a child? So he's baptized. That's taken care of, but he still has concupiscence. How many of you have the issue of concupiscence? You all do. Raise your hand. All of you. Every day that you live, concupiscence messes with your moral compass. It, it, concupiscence, the weight of it, is constantly going, oh, we're moving off a of true north. We're moving off true north. We're moving off a of true north. And Jesus is saying, Yusuf, get to confession. Bing. Okay. We're good. Go to mass. If it's a venial sin, it's forgiven in the penitential, right? But that's what constantly occurs. But the problem is, Yusuf won't see these patterns or patterns of sin or whatever in him if he's not in the presence of Jesus through mental prayer. This is why the saints argue that you can't make it without that. But with mental prayer, with Yusuf every day deciding, I'm going to get up a little early and I'm going to make sure that I get to know Jesus and I'm going to spend 15 minutes with him. And I'm going to do so in my home. I'm going to set up a little sacred space. We have these beautiful sacred spaces back here. Is that Charbel there in the, in the, in, with the big beard, or who is that? Huh? St. Charbel, that's awesome. You, do we have some Maronite refugees here in this parish? Okay, very good. I just spoke at a Maronite parish last night. It was awesome. Wonderful people. So we have these little sacred spaces that we have set up. You can set that up in your home. Why do you need to set something like that up? Because when you have a sacred space and you enter in, it tells you what to do. It helps you to turn your, your attention to God, right? So everyone should have a sacred space in your home to help you to pray. That's one of the secrets of the saints. Most saints are religious. All religious have sacred space. You want to know another secret of religious? Secret of the saints? Sacred time. All religious have sacred time. You can ask them, by the way, if you don't believe me. I don't know these sisters, but I promise you, if you ask them, they're going to tell you. And you could tell them, you could ask them, do you have a sacred space? They're going to say, oh, yes, you want to see? And if I say, and if you said, do you have a sacred time? They say, oh, yes. Well, then you can say, what's your sacred time? 5 a.m.? 6? I don't know what it is. But they all live by a rule of life. And every day, the reason that they typically advance in holiness more than we do is because they practice these secrets of sacred space and sacred time. So that means every day they pray at the same time. Raise your hand, sisters, if I'm telling the truth. Every day do we pray. Yes, see, I told you. I told you. <laughs> Why is it important that you pray at the same time? Because prayer is difficult. In, this, in scriptures, it says prayer is a battle. So you have to pray at the same time every day to make your body your friend. 
because your body otherwise is going to militate against you wanting to get up you know, early. It's going to say, oh, you're too tired or whatever. But you can train it to help you to pray, right? You can train your body to cooperate with you. As an example, when I started to get up to pray every morning and, and it became a habit, so I get up really early uh, just because there's something wrong with me, but I get up at 4 a.m. in the morning. In Alabama, that's Central Standard Time, and then I, one time I knew how powerful it was because I flew to California and my body woke me up at 2 a.m. to pray because it thought it was in Central Standard Time, you know, daylight savings time. So my body says, hey, get up, it's time to pray. I'm like, shut up, it's 2 a.m., I'm in California. I'm not in Alabama. Do you not understand? But we have to if we don't train our bodies to help us, it, it works against us, right? So the exact same time every day, and your body will wake you up. Right now, I do not need an alarm clock to get up. It's because I've been getting up at this time every day for a long, long time and praying, and now my body is my friend and it doesn't try to distract me from prayer. Does that make sense? Until I came to Australia, <laughs> where it's like a totally different day. Like, where I live, it's yesterday, right? It's yesterday, and kind of all flipped around, and wow, I don't know what's gonna happen when I get back, when my, body's, my body is very confused. Sacred time, sacred space. And the third thing that all of them know is sacred attention, which is a special way of drawing your heart and mind to God. Sacred attention, is just a method that the church has long used to help us to understand how to pray. And it's what I wrote about in Into the Deep to help you understand what sacred attention is. And sacred attention, when you, when you, you know, let's say you decide to take advantage of the special graces of prayer this year in the church, and you say, I'm gonna start, I'm gonna get up 10 minutes early, what I would recommend you do is you say, I'm gonna get up 10 minutes early and I would start to read this in that 10 minutes until you finish the book. So Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, probably by Wednesday. This is how easy this book is to read. I wrote it to be very, very clear. Not shallow, but very clear and very easy to implement. So maybe it's a week it'll take you to read the book. But every day you're getting up 10 minutes early, you're starting to develop the habit. And then when you're done with finishing this, there's a little guide in the middle to this sacred approach to prayer called Lexio Divina that you can then open up and begin opening up your Bible, the Gospels, and reading the Gospels and following this beautiful formula that helps you to draw near to Jesus. And it's not complicated. I'll give you a little example. So I'll read from you, I'll read for you from the um, Gospel of St. Luke, chapter 19, with Jesus and Zacchaeus. And so the first thing that this approach tells you to do is it says to read attentive, slow, leisurely, and repetitious reading of a short passage of Scripture. So here's what this looks like. So first you get, you, you wake up, you brush your teeth, of course, and then you sit in your sacred space at your sacred time that you've appointed and you begin to read. 
and you don't read it like this. Jesus entered Jericho, is going through the city, and a man whose name is Zacchaeus, and was a tax collector, wealthy man. Uh, yawn, why am I doing this? What you need to do is, it says, read attentive, slow, leisurely. You should read it out loud when you first begin. It would sound something like this, Jesus. And then you stop and you ask the question, Jesus, what did Jesus look like? Like, who's your favorite Jesus? I love Jonathan Rumi. I love also Jim Caviezel, like in The Passion of the Christ. He's just got this majestic thing going on, right? So I want to see Jesus as he enters into Jericho. And I want to ask, Lord, why are you entering into Jericho? So, I, so it says to, re, to read and then to reflect, to prayerfully engage with the meaning of the passage and consider how it might apply to your life and to converse with God about the passage. So I'm wondering, nothing in the Bible is superfluous. Everything is there because it means something and it's really, really important. These are the words of God himself. So shouldn't we know why? He enters into Jericho, he's going through the city and there was a man named Zacchaeus. Oh, he's gonna meet a man, that's why he's there. But why would he be there to meet Zacchaeus? Why has Jesus come to meet anyone? You know why? Because Zacchaeus wanted to meet him. And it says Zacchaeus was a tax collector and a wealthy man. Uh-oh, this is bad. That means he's a betrayer of his people. That means he is not allowed because he's a betrayer, to give, even offer sacrifice in the temple for his sins. Now, there was a time that he didn't care about this, or we'd have never become a tax collector. So let's pretend Yusuf, I'm sorry to keep picking on you, Yusuf. I love your name, it's just such a great name. So let's pretend, pretend Yusuf is the guy, right? So how does that work? Why did the Romans pick Yusuf to become a tax collector? Because they noticed Yusuf is kind of dresses a little flashy. He likes fine things. You know, I don't know Yusuf from Adam, by the way. I'm just making all this up, so don't pick on Yusuf, but, I, you know. So, but they notice, let's just, Yusuf is a little flashy and a little, and they think, you know, I bet we could get him to be a tax collector for us. He's not very pious. He just sort of goes through the motions seen him in the temple. He looks bored. So they approach him and say, Yusuf wants you to be a tax collector. Here's the gig. You sit outside of the church. Every time somebody wants to come in and worship, you, you collect. And you can take a little extra for yourself and you can get yourself a nice, a really extra fast donkey. <laughs> you know, with some stripes. And by the way, Yusuf, if they don't comply with you, we will kill them and take everything they have. And you can get some of that too, brother. And Yusuf is not in a good place. He's like, yeah, I'm gonna do that. I'm gonna be somebody. I'm gonna work with the government. I'm gonna get some money. 10 years later, he can't sleep at night because the Lord has been saying, Yusuf, I didn't make you not the life I called you to, Yusuf. 
I gave my life for you, Yusuf. I want you to be free. And Yusuf doesn't understand what's happening. He has anxiety. He decides to try to go to the temple to get his sins covered with sacrifice. And they say, you're a traitor. Get out of here. You don't belong. No sacrifice for you. You will never enter the temple again. Night after night, Zacchaeus is tossing and turning. And then he hears rumors that the Messiah may have come. Why else would he care? He has everything. He's rich. You see, this is mental prayer, okay? This, what I'm describing for you, is what happened in my own prayer as I'm musing on this passage and I'm asking these questions. These aren't complicated things to figure out. They're obvious things that you can derive from Scripture, and if you don't cry, then you could read. (laughs) So, it says, he wanted to see what Jesus was like. Why would he care if he hadn't heard he was the Messiah? Why would he care if he wasn't aching inside? And he was short. Jews of this time were already really short, so he must have been really short. And he couldn't see him because of the crowd, so now he's in a very undignified manner with probably some great anxiety because he has some hope. Maybe this is the Messiah. Maybe I can be free. I just want to see him. I just want to look in his eyes. I just want to know, is this the one that can set me free from my sin? So he's desperate, and he sees Jesus is heading this way, and he runs and he climbs up the tree and he gets out on the limb. And he turns and he looks to see if he can see the eyes of this man that they say is the one who is coming to set us all free. And he's looking to see if he can see in his eyes. And we know this because Jesus looks up. And what does he say? Zacchaeus. Do you imagine what that felt like? How would he know his name? Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus knew just in that moment it was all good. Jesus says, he looked up to him and he said, Zacchaeus, now my fingers aren't working. Now I'm licking the pastor's Bible. Come down quickly, for my, I must stay at your house. So Zacchaeus hurried and received him joyfully. And Zacchaeus said to him, as he spoke to Jesus, half of my goods, Lord, I give to the poor. And if I have cheated anyone, I'll pay him back four times as much. Looking at him, Jesus said, salvation has come to this house today. For this man is also a true son of Abraham. The Son of Man has come to seek and save that which is lost. I am not an actor. I can't read this without going to tears. I don't have the ability to manufacture such things. It brings me to tears because I've been Zacchaeus. 
I've been a sinner, I've been a man who's chosen the wrong way. And I know what it's like to ache inside to be free. I know what it's like to cry out to God and say, you gotta save me, because I'm not doing a great job of saving myself. This, my friends, is prayer. This is prayer. The Lord is calling you this year to something different. The Lord is calling you to join Mary of Bethany at his feet. Will you answer or will you be stuck in your worry and in your misery and in your anxiety and in your fear and in your doubt and in your busyness? Or will it be different for you this year? Will you make a choice? You all are in church because you claim that Jesus is God of God, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made, consubstantial with the Father. Through him all things were made. You all claim that. Do you talk with him? Do you speak with him? Do you meet him every day? so that he can heal you, so that he can draw you into relationship with himself. You all know the answer, so I just want to extend the same invitation to you that the Vicar of Christ is extending to all, and that is to come and sit at his feet. Come and learn what it means to be transformed. Come and learn what it means to become a saint. Come and learn what it means to be free. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Um, just what saint inspires you the most, and why? Uh, saint Teresa of Avila, it's really easy. Uh, she's one of the reasons I became Catholic. Uh, I stumbled across her writings I was a Protestant, I first became an evangelical in my conversion process, and I was struggling with prayer. I really um, believed in living a life of prayer. I was very convicted very early on about that. But I was struggling with aridity and with difficulties in prayer, and I read every, literally every Protestant book in print. I worked for the largest Christian book chain in California at the time. So I read every book in print and I couldn't find the answers. And I stumbled on one where the Protestant guy compiled a bunch of Catholic writers and he decatholicized their names. So she was Teresa de Ahimada, which was her name uh, when prior to her reception into the convent. And, and I didn't know she was a Catholic saint and so I started to read and realized, oh wow, she has the answers. And eventually discovered she was Catholic and then I started reading Catholic mystical tradition and the whole world opened up for me. And, uh, and uh, it's, you know, so it's part of the reason. So she's my confirmation saint and, and the one that, uh, yeah, that's the one she gets under my skin and, and draw, I just love her, love her. Yes. Thank you, um, you mentioned sacred space, sacred time, and you also said that uh, sacred attention. Yes. Uh, could you say? 
Yeah, so what I was demonstrating for you as I was reading is Lexio Divina. And that's what I've written about in Into the Deep, Sacred Time, Space, and Attention, and I explained that. And then I was following the Lexio Divina outline. You'd, I wasn't like going back and forth to it very much, but Sacred Attention is about using a particular approach that has helped many to become saints to actually draw out of the scripture the things that I was drawing out of the scripture for you. So in the book, I, I ask, you know, I describe these things and ask questions to guide you to find your way to some of these same kinds of insights and that sort of thing. So sacred attention is that time where you, you sit with the Gospels and you really seek to come to know Jesus in the Gospels, sitting at his feet. Does that make sense? Very good question. Thank you. Hi, Mr. Hi. Can you put the mic a little closer to your mouth? I want to ask a quick question about um, struggling with prayer and identity. Um, what would you suggest, um, how to beat that and how to, um, maybe, I don't know, what book you would suggest or what sort of methods you would suggest to, to um, try to fight that? To deal with, I'm sorry. Aridity and dryness in prayer. So, Okay, so what would I recommend to, to deal with aridity and dryness in prayer? So what aridity is, if you've never heard of it, it's it, a desert is arid without water. And aridity is when you have what is called, what you would uh, understand as the perceived absence of the presence of God. So it seems like God isn't present when you're, when you're seeking him. And that's what, so you agree that's what we're talking about. So I don't know off the top of my head, believe it or not, a good book on aridity to recommend to you, but I can tell you a little bit about how to deal with it. One is aridity often emerges because the Lord is trying to get our attention for one reason or another. So aridity can come for, for good reasons, and, or, or uh, they're, they're all good reasons, but aridity is like a dashboard light on your car that says, hey, check these systems out to see if they're okay because there may be an issue. Maybe not. So as an example, if you came to me and said, I'm struggling with aridity, I would ask you what your prayer routine looked like. And you, you would say to me, well, I, every day I get up at six and I pray. And so my question would be, have you been consistent with that? And you might say, no, I haven't. Well, when that happens, the Lord says, hey, what is your name, by the way? Bridget, Bridget, I, I noticed you're slacking off a little bit, and, I, and it, this isn't healthy for you, Bridget, and so I would like you to correct this, and, and, and then the, the aridity will abate, or whatever. You know, that might be it. Or I might say to you, Bridget, are you following your spiritual disciplines? You say yes, and I might say, well, do you, are you having trouble sleeping lately? You know, right? Oh, yes, I'm having trouble sleeping. Oh. Well, what time are you going to bed the night before? Well, I mean, I like to hang out with my friends, you know? Um, you know whatever, I'm picking on Bridget, but you know, and so you're not going to bed at a consistent time. So it's physiological aridity caused by that. Or you might say, no, no, I, I'm very disciplined when I go to bed because I wanna pray the next morning. Oh, this is very good, Bridget. Um, uh, you know, I wonder if we might explore if the Lord is just teaching you 
that your success and progress in prayer doesn't have so much to do with you as it does for him. And so this might be something that's causing some humility. You know, that's good for the soul, you know, that sort of thing. So, there, there, so I will tell you this. Um, there, uh, I just taught a 12-hour course for Perusia Media, and I talk about these things throughout the course of, of uh, prayer. It was all about mental prayer and aridity. Uh, not all about aridity, I'm sorry, all about mental prayer. And I cover this in various places. And so, uh, Charbel, when will that course be available? In a couple of months, it'll be available on Perusia's website. And if, in the meantime, I remember a book title that deals with aridity, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll let you know. Teresa of Avila? Oh, gosh, yes. Every, every saint has struggled with aridity. Like, if, you, if you're thinking you're broken and, and you're the only one, you need to know that you're not. Everyone struggles with aridity. Everyone with a pulse who prays struggles with aridity, so you're in good company. I struggle with aridity and have struggled with aridity. So it's just a matter of discovering what is the Lord doing in that and how does he want to work with us. But, it, but here's the thing, though. This is important for you to know. Aridity is the perceived absence of the presence of God. Not the true, not the, it doesn't mean he's actually not there. It's just how we're experiencing them. Can I ask you a personal question? Are you a mother? Okay, so I want to give you an example of a beautiful reason you might experience aridity. Um, a girl or boy or multiple? Two boys. So do you remember what, which one's your favorite? I'm kidding. <laughs> do you remember, so give me the name of one of them. Matthew. Do you remember when Matthew was just about this big and he would just love to be on mama's you know, shoulder or and laying on her and skin to skin and probably really well fed. He's like in ecstasy, right? Now, because you're a good mother, you knew that it, you didn't, nobody even needed to tell you this. You knew that you couldn't just hold Matthew all the time. He would be malformed if you did that. So occasionally what you would do is put Matthew down and early on, you put Matthew on his tummy, just by instinct. But why are you doing that? Because you know Matthew needs to learn to lift his head, right? And Matthew needs to learn to roll over. So you would put him on his tummy and stand a little bit out of his view so he would strain to see you and learn. Now, what happened? What is Matthew experiencing? Where's my mama? Give me back my mama, ah, you know, right? He's not happy, why? Because he doesn't see you, he doesn't know you're there. So he's straining to look, the exact same thing that he needs to do to mature and to grow. Well, so St. John of the Cross uses this analogy to describe the power and the movement of aridity with God when he needs to teach us. So he removes some of this comfort so that we can grow and develop those muscles and strength. So aridity is not always bad. It can also be a good thing. All right, good. Okay. Yes. Hello, Dan. Um, Hi. I actually saw you at the Immaculata Mission School. Um, you spoke about um, spiritual warfare. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for that talk. Oh, thank for you. This talk. It's been so beautiful and so impactful. 
if you want to share, you don't have to. But um, I was just wondering how God called you to this ministry to speak and to speak in front of everyone. You're very gifted, and uh. um, yeah, just praise be to God. You're, you're very kind. Why did he call me or how? Yeah, just like how and yeah, if you want to share why, but just how. I think it's a little bit like Balaam's donkey in the Old Testament. Um, uh, you know, he just needs a broken, you know, funky vehicle that's willing to speak. I don't know. <laughs> I don't really know, you know. So I, I'm an introvert. I like to be alone, and I like to be in quiet, and I like to pray, and I don't like to talk in front of people. Uh, so that's probably why. <laughs> to punish me. Yeah, I don't know. It's a good question. Maybe you could ask my wife. I don't know what she would answer. Um, I don't know. You know, uh, I just love him. And... You know, there was a time in my life when I had no reason to live. And I had a lot of reasons not to. And when I cried out, he came. And this is the only reason I know to live. I have no other reason but to tell other people about him. Because I wouldn't be here. I can't help it, even though I don't like it. <laughs> I mean, I love people and I love to tell, but, you know, it wears me out. <laughs> and I have to go in my cave for, you know, a few days and recover. But yeah, he saved me. He gave me a reason to live. He gave me hope. He gave me peace. He healed me. So I, my mouth just keeps going. I won't stop. <laughs> and then people say, you should come and use your mouth and tell us. And I say, okay, just get, make sure you cover my plane ticket. And I'll be there. And forgive me if I'm an idiot sometimes in what I say. I don't always say it the right way, you know. But that's the reason. He's given everything to me, and I just can't imagine living life without telling as many people possible. So thank you for asking. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Dan, for uh, the session. Uh, one quick question. When you spend time in, uh, in mental prayer, especially when you have a lot of thoughts coming in your head, right? Yeah. Just, maybe you don't really desire it when you sit with the Lord, but these thoughts, just some other thoughts just come at you. Maybe it's something very personal to you, but then how do you deal with it? I mean, I, just ignore it or... Yeah, that's a good question. So the, the Christian conception of how you deal with uh, difficult thoughts is by just actively filling your heart and mind with Him. So if you noticed... You know, the reflection I'm giving has a lot of color and taste and texture and all of that to it. So to, when you give yourself to the scriptures as well as you can, those things emerge and begin to occupy your heart and mind. Also, if you can read imaginative materials um, that help you to develop a holy imagination, it helps you to draw to the text, uh, watching The Chosen, uh, reading Michael uh, McDonald's uh, Theophilus or... He's a great uh, Catholic fiction writer, uh, which describes the book of Luke and maybe a more full-color version of what happened in the New Testament. So developing a holy imagination helps to push out the distracting thoughts. But the other thing is, is just learning 
One, to not be frustrated. Uh, um, uh, well, I'll, I have a question for you, a quiz for all of you. Do you all know when distracting thoughts in prayer end? Do you know what causes it to end? Do you all know the secret? When you're dead. <laughs> so, and, and, and the other thing is, if you have a pulse, you'll have distracting thoughts. So you're not alone, this is not just your issue. But the key is not to be frustrated and just, you know, it's so, like I love, my wife is my best friend. My marriage is just, I couldn't imagine a better marriage to a more beautiful, amazing woman. We go out to dinner, there's a stupid television set with a football game on over here. <laughs> so what can happen occasionally? I'm like, you hear this, score, you know, it's like, okay, whoa, oh, the, oh yeah. And then, I'm, and then I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta watch. <laughs> and, and, and then what should I do? Oh, I'm sorry. It's, it, I, I shouldn't go, oh, I'm bad. Oh, I can't believe I did that. That's the devil, you know, getting in and in your pride. And then, you, then now you're totally disrupted because your adrenaline's going up and you're making a big deal about the fact that you are human and just happen to drift off. Um, but just gently come back. And one of the things is spiritual warfare, because the enemy wants you to be distracted, just say the name of Jesus. Just say, Jesus, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm back with you. Or you can have a phrase that you like to say, not a mantra, this is not Christian, a phrase that is a prayer. So my favorite is from St. Alphonsus Liguri's Stations of the Cross. When I get distracted, I say, I love you, Jesus, my love. Grant that I might love you always and do with me as you will. Or I say, Jesus. Or I say, in Jesus' name, shut up. <laughs> you know, just, just a lot of different ways. Okay. Hey, Dan. I um, just want to say thank you so much for sharing your experiences and sharing your knowledge. I also heard you in IMS mm. earlier this year, and that was fantastic. I just wanted to um, touch upon the questions, the line of questioning that you had in terms of the Aaron prayer question. Uh, sure. How did you know like, what to investigate first in, in life? Like, does that make sense? In terms of determining what the root cause of the aridity? Um, I don't follow any set patterns. There's just a, a handful of questions um, that are really, you know, like how are you physically sleeping? Um, are you, you know, th there's not like 40 of them. There's only 10. You know, I don't know what the number is actually, but there's only a few. Um, but here's, here's another thing. I mean, it's, aridity is normal. You know, like uh, you, you wake up out of bed every day. Uh, some days your spirit is like sunny. And some days you wake up and it's your spirit is like overcast, you know, gloomy. And, and, you know, this is what Teresa, I wrote a book called 30 Days with Teresa Avila, where she was, she was uh, guiding her younger brother. And he was, he was struggling with this. And, she, and she, she basically said, just relax, you know, it's okay. Now, you might say, but Dan, I've had a lot of aridity and it's frustrating to me, you know. Uh, so these things can be difficult. I think what w the remedy is, one, 
understanding that if we are constantly showing up, which is one of the secrets of the saints, just show up, same time, sacred time, sacred space, sacred attention, in your brokenness, in your goodness, in whatever, if you just keep showing up, he will show you the way. And you just ask him. And if you don't have a spiritual director, which can be super helpful, uh, St. Teresa of Avila says, ask St. Joseph to help and show you the way. And he won't, he won't leave you without an answer. But begin to study the interior life too. So read books you know, like Into the Deep and Teresa of Avila and these sorts of things. And, and you'll learn, take the course from Perusia and you'll get, you know, I, I do go in depth in this topic um, uh, with different kinds of aridity. And there's Q&A in the, in the filming as well. So, but there's just a handful of key questions. How are you physically, psychologically? Are you following your disciplines that you promised to God you would follow? Um, uh, maybe, you're, maybe it's just, you know, the normal ebb and flow of relationships where one day or another. But I wouldn't worry about it too much as long as you're very sound in the sacraments, you know, regular Eucharist and confession. If you're hanging out at IMS, I know you're already doing, you know, doing some great things and on a great path. And do a little study and the Lord will reveal to you, uh, specifically for you, what's going on. But definitely get the course and, and you'll get a lot of insight from there because it's a lot of, lot of teaching there. One more? Okay. And then, uh, this is kind of the other topic that I was going to ask. What is meditation? Some examples and the different types of meditation. So, I, and I didn't quite get the question. Uh, what is meditation? Some examples and the different types of meditation. What is meditation? Some examples and like, different types. The, the different okay. types. Okay. So what we did earlier is meditation. When I was leading you through the passage in Luke about Zacchaeus, that's mental prayer. Mental prayer is, is synonymous with meditation. Lexio divina is meditation. Meditation is mental prayer. Mental prayer is lexio divina. So that's, it, it, and what it is is it's filling your heart and mind with God, and allowing Him, spending time with Him, and allowing Him to change you. The different types of meditation are. Uh, as an example, discursus or discursive meditation, where you're more intellectually exploring a passage of scripture. So you might, what that might look like is if you had a study Bible and you're studying that same passage of Zacchaeus and, and meeting Jesus in Jericho, you might go look up what is it like in Jericho and find pictures of Jericho. And you might even see there's act the tree Supposedly that same tree is still there that Zacchaeus ran up. I've, and I've been to Jericho and I've seen it. And I've smelled Jericho and Jericho is a very desert hot area. So you might intellectually explore that. Why do I know what I know about tax collectors? You might explore that in a study Bible and think about it and process. That's discursive meditation. Affective meditation is what happens when you enter into the passage and it begins to affect you or to change you. So affective meditation is when uh, the Lord moves and begin, uh, I'll give you an example of the differences between the two. One time I was uh, 
driving home from work, and I began to think about my wife. I was thinking about her. And I was um, thinking about what a good woman she is and how different she is from the day I met her and how beautiful she is and how the Lord has moved in her and she has said yes to him over and over and become a holy, honorable woman of God. So I'm thinking about these things. I'm, that's discursus. I'm thinking about her. And then I began to recognize that my love for her was increasing in that moment. My love was welling up in me for her. And it actually brought tears to my eyes as I was in... So I went from discursive musing about my wife to experiencing a deeper love for her. And then I realized I passed the grocery store where they sell flowers. And I turned around and went and bought flowers for her. Affective meditation gives you an experience of God that changes your life and your behavior. So my love deepened for her, and then I acted on that love by going to get her flowers. So now, he may not, that's not maybe not what he meant. He may be asking about the difference between Ignatian meditation and Lectio Divina or whatever. But I think that uh, it, what's more important is not the method, but that we give ourselves over to uh, our heart and mind to Jesus in scriptures and allow it to change us. So uh, hopefully that was close to the question you were looking to get answered. And I think there's one more. Can I? Yeah, just what is, can you hear me? Hello? Yep. What is contemplation after all that? So okay. is contemplation like the next level again? Yeah, it is. So what is that? Yeah, so contemplation is a state of prayer that you cannot manufacture. It, all the saints have experienced this kind of prayer, but meditation begins to prepare the heart and mind for this deeper kind of prayer where God infuses new and, uh, and, and grace and his life into you in a way that gives you deeper insights into who he is and who you are, gives you the, gives you the life of God such that virtue can grow up and well up in you in ways that you could never achieve uh, but on your own, but it's a state of prayer that the Lord then is, so meditation is a kind of prayer where we're doing a lot of the work, and contemplation is a kind of prayer where the Lord breaks in and really begins to do something very special and powerful in a soul that only he can do. Uh, so does that make sense? Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Was that the last question? That's it, and if I can just ask as we close, how do people get in touch with you uh, spiritualdirection.com and what yes. is all that just the whole yeah. network of what you're involved in yeah yeah so um, we actually have a, a, an Australian resource site and Ali do you know the URL by any chance spiritualdirection.com forward slash AU spiritualdirection.com forward slash AU and in that site you'll find everything that's available in, uh, uh, in Australia, so there'll be links to Perusia. And they've, they translated all these books into Australian for you. So you can, <laughs> you can get these here. Into the Deep, Spiritual Warfare, Discernment of Spirits. A few of the folks from IMS mentioned that, that Stephanie and I taught, a, uh, we did five lectures, I think, on this. 
Finding Peace in the Storm. If you're struggling with what's going on in the world today, this one is incredibly powerful. It's mostly Alphonsus Liguri. I just provide some commentary. Uh, navigating the Interior Life, which will help you uh, understand how to kind of get your whole spiritual life in order, if you will. Um, so these are there. There's a five-part uh, series on mental prayer there that's uh, professionally produced. And then, of course, the, the deeper course will be available through Perusia Media. So there's all kinds of resources, including our community here in Australia. If you, uh, if you have a sense that you want to belong to a group of people who are giving their lives to Jesus and learning how to pray and live the contemplative life in the Carmelite tradition, we have a community here, a community all over the world, but particularly here in Australia. So spiritualdirection.com forward slash AU. Um, one last thing, something very cool, the, mostly for, well, this is gonna sound biased, but I'll just say for the younger ones who like to use apps, I don't know, some of us who are older like to do that too. But um, we have a new app that's just now working in Australia called Holy Habits. And the Holy Habits app is something you can use to create a rule of life. Like let's say I'm gonna start a new prayer life and you can put that in and you're gonna say Monday at this time, Tuesday at Wednesday. And then you can connect that with a friend of yours to help you to be accountable. And it'll send messages and update you through text and you can update it through text to help you to be accountable. So just all kinds of resources along with Perusia like the best source of Catholic content in Australia, Perusia as well. Um, you, you have whatever you need, along with amazing priests. I've heard so many great things about you all in this parish and the life that you're building in this parish. Um, you have all you need to become saints, so please go check it all out. Thank you very much. Okay.